0: Hello and welcome to another episode of California Crime Stories. This podcast is brought to you by a mom and daughter podcasting duo. I'm the daughter. And I'm the mom. And here we bring you true tales of murder and mystery from the Golden State. Some are old, some are new, some made national news, and some were small town stories. But all of them have piqued our interest over the years, and we know that they'll pique yours too. Maybe you joined us last episode for our deep dive into the murder of Judy Williamson and into a self-help seminar popularized in the 1970s called Air Hard Seminars Training, which helped lead to the resolution of Judy's case almost 15 years after her murder. You'll remember we started and ended our last episode in Albany, a town on the eastern shore of the San Francisco Bay. Today, we'll be traveling just a short distance across those icy, rough waters to a little island you might have heard of, called Alcatraz. It feels like it's been a long time since we recorded our last episode. We've been busy with research and life things, but we're happy to be back with you in our state-of-the-art closet recording studio. (laughs) It's great. If only you all could see it. And this episode is going to be a little different from what you've heard so far from us. After our last couple of episodes, we needed a break from murder and horrific violence against women, and maybe you did too. So today we're bringing you some lighter fare. This is the story of an escape against all odds, of a mystery which for almost 60 years has lived on in the popular imagination and of an island which played host to a Civil War fort, a notorious prison, and a Native American occupation, before being designated a National Historic Landmark. This is the story of the escape from
1: Alcatraz. On the night of June 11, 1962, as guards stood watch and their fellow inmates slept, Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin escaped from Alcatraz Prison never to be seen again. The three seasoned escape artists had spent months digging holes in their cell walls and constructing a raft that would carry them off of the rock and to freedom. Although items from the men's escape were recovered in the waters and on the shores of the San Francisco Bay, the men themselves were never found. And decades of investigation by the FBI and U.S. Marshals have failed to uncover definitive proof of the escapees' fate. Did they fall victim to the frigid waters and changing tides of the bay, their bodies pulled out to sea and lost forever? Or did they paddle to safety and evade law enforcement for the rest of their lives? Almost 60 years later, the investigation continues, and the mystery endures. Morris and the Anglins' escape from Alcatraz has become the stuff of legend, a legend which has long outlived the crumbling island prison that failed to hold them. In researching the escape from Alcatraz, we drew mostly from a bunch of articles about the history of Alcatraz from the National Park Service, the FBI's enormous file on the escape, which we read, so thankfully you don't have to. Don't do it, you guys. <laughs> Some local news stories about recent developments in the search for Morris and the Anglins, and some science y sources about getting hypothermia in cold water, swimming a mile in open water, and tidal patterns in the San Francisco Bay. You can find all of our sources, as usual, in the show notes.
0: We're going to begin by telling you a little bit about our three escapees, their lives before Alcatraz and the crimes and prior escape attempts that landed them on the rock. Because it was this, their history of escape attempts, that led to Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers' incarceration on Alcatraz Island. As the popular saying about Alcatraz goes, break the rules and you go to prison. Break the prison rules and you go to Alcatraz. Frank Lee Morris was born in 1926 in Washington, D.C., Abandoned by his parents, Morris spent his childhood in a series of foster homes and was arrested for the first time at age 13 for burglary. From then on, he was in and out of reform schools and state and federal prisons serving sentences for burglary, breaking and entering, armed robbery, and possession of narcotics. And during those years he showed himself to be an accomplished escape artist. Out of at least six attempts, Morris succeeded in escaping from prison at least four times. And I say at least four successes out of at least six total attempts because the number of total attempts and escapes is disputed in the FBI's files on Frank Morris. But that's still not a bad record for him, four for six. It was good enough to get him transferred to the United States Penitentiary at Alcatraz in 1960. At the time of his escape in 1962, Frank Morris was six years into a 14-year prison sentence for bank robbery. He was 35 years old and had spent the better part of his life behind
1: bars. John William Anglin and his little brother Clarence Anglin were born in 1930 and 1931 respectively in rural Georgia. They grew up in a family of migrant farm workers along with 12 other brothers and sisters. The family traveled throughout the country to pick fruit during harvest season. John and Clarence were mischievous young boys. They often played hooky from school, and John only made it through the third grade, Clarence through the fifth. In their teenage years, they began channeling their mischievousness into petty crime. With the help of their brother Alfred, John and Clarence began robbing banks, and despite their age, they were charged as adults and sent to state prison. And like Frank Morris, John and Clarence became known as escape artists. Between the two of them, they had three escape attempts under their belt before being transferred to Alcatraz. One of these attempts was particularly legendary. In 1960, while John and Clarence were stationed together at the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, the two brothers hatched a plan. Clarence Anglin would conceal himself inside two metal bread boxes that were to be transported from Leavenworth to the prison's honor farm. So Clarence hid among the loaves of bread, with one half of his body smooshed into one bread box and the other half smooshed into the other bread box. In case you're wondering how this could have been possible, he had made a hole in both of the boxes.
0: This sounds like the type of plan that only two Goober brothers could come up with.
1: (laughs) John Anglin helped his younger brother by pushing the bread boxes into an elevator. But when the prison's food supervisor observed movement in one of the bread boxes, Clarence Anglin was discovered inside. Darn, Shocking. For the attempted escape, Clarence Anglin was given another two-year sentence. John was transferred to Alcatraz in 1960, Clarence in 1961. At the time of their escape, John Anglin was 32 years old and four years into a 10-year sentence, and Clarence was 31 years old and four years into a 17-year sentence. So as much as we're enjoying the prison capers of Frank Morris
0: and the Anglin brothers, Let's bookmark our look at them for just a few minutes to get into the story of Alcatraz itself up to the time of their escape. Alcatraz was a military fort before it became a federal prison. After the California gold rush started in 1848, the federal government became very nervous about protecting the area, which would not become a state for another two years, and its now very valuable mineral resources from seizure by other countries. So in 1850, President Fillmore issued an executive order that established Alcatraz Island as part of a triangle of defense guarding the entrance to the San Francisco Bay. In 1859, Fort Alcatraz was completed. Although Alcatraz Island was initially envisioned as an army defensive fortification, even then they realized that it was a good location for a prison.
1: The guardhouse is the oldest building still standing on the island and is the site of its first prison. During the Civil War, the army held deserters, insubordinate soldiers, and Confederate sympathizers in this location. Soon they were running out of space, and another large wooden prison and workshop complex, called the Lower Prison Complex, was built in the late 1860s. Among those held there in what I think we can all agree, were deplorable conditions where Native Americans rounded up in the last stages of the, quote, American Indian Wars. Okay, not my words, people. I'm using the historical nomenclature for these conflicts. So these these Native Americans held their included members of the Hopi Nation, designated as hostiles, for refusing to send their children to government boarding schools for, quote, re-education. In fact, the army was so good at imprisoning folks that they had to build additional facilities, eventually numbering three two-tier cell houses. Unfortunately, all these wooden structures were total fire traps. So because of this, as well as the recent 1906 earthquake and fire in San Francisco, the army set about constructing the world's largest steel-reinforced concrete building on the island. Completed in 1912, its 600 five-foot by nine-foot cells housed prisoners ranging from disobedient soldiers to those convicted of serious crimes while on active duty. A not-fun historical fact I found in my reading. During World War I, conscientious objectors, 30 of them, were held in basement cells. Those who refused to follow orders were then placed in iron cages or cells where they were forced to stand, chained to the cell door, unable to sit or turn around for eight hours a day. And even after the war ended in November 1918, some were not released till more than a year later.
0: Over time, though its remote location deterred escape, it also proved to be the Army's worst obstacle. Food, water, and supplies all had to be imported to Alcatraz, which was very costly, especially during the Great Depression. So by 1933, most of the army installation had left Alcatraz Island, and had transferred most of its inmates to other institutions. They did turn over 32 of what they considered their worst prisoners to the custody of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And so begins Alcatraz Island's next and final phase as a prison that of the high-security U.S. penitentiary Alcatraz. Now, it goes without saying that San Francisco's citizens were not excited to have the worst of the worst in terms of criminals, right within boating or swimming distance. A broad-based coalition of city government, law enforcement, the local press, and a federation of women's groups rose in opposition to the Bureau of Prisons plan, all to no avail the Justice Department continued its planning to convert the military prison on Alcatraz Island into a maximum security penitentiary. Many facilities improvements, mostly enhancing prison security, were required before the first federal inmates could be transferred here. Think tamper-proof window guards and locking devices, modern cell fronts, sealing off old tunnels that could become escape routes, more guard towers, that kind of stuff.
1: Once the painters finished up their work, the United States Penitentiary, Alcatraz, was open for business. The first small group of 14 prisoners arrived on August 11, 1934. In less than a month, the inmate population numbered around 210. The governing philosophy for Alcatraz, if that's what you want to call it, was an emphasis on very strict discipline and the desire for as little publicity as possible regarding the prisoners and the events of the island. The first warden was known to run things with a rigid iron fist and operated under the principle of very limited privileges for inmates. In those early years, a strict code of silence was enforced at all hours and inmates weren't allowed to read newspapers or magazines. Visitor privileges, while limited, had to be earned over time. Likewise, male privileges were limited. Educational opportunities and facilities were limited. Are you seeing a pattern here? The powers that be at Alcatraz and the Bureau of Prisons enforced the inmates' limited privileges and lack of information about life off of the rock with a specific purpose in mind to break their contact with the underworld. This was, after all, the early 1930s. For more than a decade, law enforcement agencies across America had been doing battles with the gangsters and crime syndicates born of Prohibition. And those professional bank robbers, kidnappers, racketeers, and bootleggers who had terrorized the American public would be among the first prisoners sent to Alcatraz. Perhaps the cold island air, the isolation, or the monotony would finally break these hardened criminals' resolve, as well as their ties to the criminal underworld they left behind on the mainland. The mystique of Alcatraz, meanwhile, would hopefully serve as a deterrent to those outside. Life
0: on the island followed a simple but repetitive and rigorously enforced routine. Those who had earned work privileges were sent to work, either in the laundry, the tailor shop, the cobbler shop, the model shop, or on gardening and other labor details. A bright spot, according to inmates, were the library and the quality of food served at Alcatraz. The variety was good, as was the produce, and inmates could have as much or as little as they wished. The only rules were not to waste food, and this was a huge challenge, Complete silence was enforced during all meals. As the years passed, they eased up on this requirement, as well as the code of silence enforced at all hours that we mentioned before, because they were shown to be very detrimental to prisoners' mental health. Chapel services were also available, conducted by Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish clergy. The number of inmates at Alcatraz grew steadily, and at the end of its first year of operation, the population stood at 242. The Bureau of Prisons considered their experiment in establishing a federal penitentiary for recidivists a success. Prison staff were housed in remodeled army quarters scattered about the island, and by 1937, staff and dependents numbering 158 adults and 64 children were residing on the rock. Children who grew up on Alcatraz describe a rather normal childhood. It was like any other company town, where you knew everyone, and everyone worked at the same place. There was a post office, a small grocery store, and a two-lane bowling alley. Handball and baseball were popular pastimes
1: for children and adults alike. In 1939, the new U.S. Attorney General Frank Murphy made kind of a surprising announcement that he thought that Alcatraz was a, quote, place of horror and its prisoners should be moved elsewhere. The local media took hold of that story and had all sorts of suggestions for alternate uses for the island, including a Statue of Liberty-type installation. But nothing came of this, as even Murphy came to realize that it was impossible at that time to shutter Alcatraz. So the years continued to pass. During World War II, Inmates did their part for the war effort by manufacturing cargo nets and army clothing. More years passed. The climate exacted its toll on the buildings and infrastructure of the island. And although Alcatraz's remote location, and rumors that the waters around it were infested with man-eating sharks, did serve to deter escapes, plenty of inmates still tried. During the almost 30 years that Alcatraz served as a federal penitentiary, 36 men made 14 separate escape attempts. Of those 36, 23 inmates were apprehended, 6 were shot and killed, 2 drowned in the bay, and 5 were listed as missing and presumed drowned. In 1952, the Bureau of Prisons declared that it was time to replace Alcatraz with an institution more centrally located and less difficult to operate. But the wheels of government ground ever so slowly, and nothing came of this declaration until an engineering survey in 1961 disclosed that its infrastructure was so dangerously deteriorated that $5 million in repair and rebuilds would be required. Meanwhile, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy announced plans for a brand new maximum security institution at Marion, Illinois. So we're going to fast forward now to May of
0: 1961. The Anglin brothers have been on Alcatraz for several months, while Frank Morris has been there for more than a year. And we're going to introduce another important player in this story who you haven't heard about yet. His name is Alan West, and he was another inmate on the rock. Like Morris and the Anglins, West's rap sheet included a number of arrests for theft, robbery, and breaking and entering. West actually met Morris and the Anglins when the four were incarcerated at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. And like Morris and the Anglins, West was sent to Alcatraz because of his history of escape attempts. But that's not the only reason Alan West figures into this story. In fact, West was an active conspirator in the escape from Alcatraz from the very beginning. But at the last minute, he was unable to join Morris and the Anglins in their escape. West later turned himself in to Alcatraz officers and admitted his involvement. And today, all of the information we have about the escape comes from West's testimony and from the tools and materials that he and his co-conspirators left behind. Alan West claims that he was the ringleader of the Escape from Alcatraz. Others believe that Frank Morris orchestrated the escape plot, and that West is overstating his involvement in the planning. After all, Morris had an IQ of 133, and had planned and pulled off a number of breakouts. In the film Escape from Alcatraz, Frank Morris is clearly portrayed as being the brains behind the escape, and is played by leading man, Clint Eastwood. Meanwhile, seeing the character of Charlie Butts, who stands in for Alan West, you might think that West was this unlucky schmuck who can't keep up with Morris and the Anglin's escape plan and gets left behind. In reality, it sounds like Alan West was kind of a manipulative asshole. His escape attempts notwithstanding, West often provoked arguments among fellow Alcatraz inmates and helped fuel racial tensions between white and black prisoners. He was also known for being hot-headed and arrogant, and other inmates steered clear of him. But whether it was Alan West or Frank Morris at the helm, in the end, West was really the author of the Escape from Alcatraz story, Morris and the Englands weren't there to refute or corroborate his telling. So, West's story is the one that we have to go off of. And he says that in around May of 1961, he started thinking of ways to escape from Alcatraz. By this time, West had spent several years on the island, and probably knows the ins and outs of the prison pretty well. And one day, while assigned to cleaning detail on the cell house roof, Wes noticed that one of the ventilator caps on the roof had not been cemented shut like the others. When we say ventilator cap, what we mean is a sort of metal dome or hat that sits on top of an opening, a hole basically, in the cell house roof. Most homes and buildings have these sorts of ventilator caps on their roofs nowadays. So this loose ventilator cap could give the inmates access to the roof from inside the cell house, and could provide a possible escape route. So Alan West told Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, his old friends from the Atlanta penitentiary, about his discovery. And by December of 1961, the four inmates had begun planning and preparing for their breakout.
1: But how would Morris, West, and the Anglins get from their cells on Alcatraz's B block to the loose ventilator cap, which would take them to the cell house roof. First, they would have to escape from their cells. Now, slipping through the front cell bars was too risky. They were bound to be seen by the prison guards who kept watch over B block. Instead, the men set their sights on the air vents in back of each of their cells. The air vents were small rectangular openings in the concrete cell wall and were covered by a metal grill. Now, the air vent was only 6 inches by 9 inches, so the men would need to chip away at the concrete around it to both widen the opening and remove the grill. So the men began experimenting with ways to get through the concrete. Alan West had read in a book somewhere that at temperatures between 500 and 900 degrees, concrete would disintegrate. So he got a hold of some heating wires like those you'd find inside a toaster plug them in in his cell and tried to hold them up against the concrete i just laugh cuz i'm just picturing these like toaster coils and he's holding them up there like waiting for them to it must ignite be about right
0: 800 degrees now <laughs>
1: So not only was this technique super unsafe, but it was completely unsuccessful at breaking down any of the concrete. (laughs) He's lucky he survived, (laughs) honestly. So then John Anglin tried a different tactic. He had gotten a hold of a spoon, and he flattened or filed off the end of it so that it resembled a screwdriver. Using this modified spoon, he was able to, little by little, chip through some of the concrete. So the rest of the men started to collect spoons from the prison dining hall, and then they fashioned their own digging tools. And then they began to dig. Every night, between the after-dinner count at 5.30 p.m. and lights out at 9.30, the men would bore small holes through the concrete around the air vent. Now, since Frank Morris and Alan West had adjoining cells, they took turns every night, while one man dug the other kept watch for the guards using a homemade cardboard periscope i'm also laughing just picturing that (laughs) the anglin brothers followed the same schedule in their own adjoining cells meanwhile the other inmates read they listened to music or baseball games on their cell radios or they slept morris west and the anglins filled their finished holes with painted soap or toilet paper so that they wouldn't draw the attention of the guards. Over the course of several months, they dug more and more closely spaced holes around the perimeter of the vent, joining the holes together until finally they were able to pull out a section of the wall around the vent, leaving behind a hole large enough for them to crawl through. But their escape wasn't quite ready yet, so the men had to make a fake wall panel and grill out of cardboard to conceal the hole and then they hid their digging tools behind this false front.
0: Behind the cell wall Morris West and the Anglids would find a three-foot wide utility corridor. This corridor provided Alcatraz staff with access to B-blocks plumbing, heating, and lighting networks. It was unguarded and extended 30 feet up to the top of the cell house. After scaling those 30 feet of pipe, the men would find an opening in the ceiling. On the other side of that opening was the uncemented ventilator cap we mentioned earlier. The last step would be spreading the metal pipes that ran across the opening and removing the fastenings which held the ventilator cap in place. After making onto the cell house roof, The men planned to slide down a pipe to the ground, head for the shore, and paddle a homemade raft to Angel Island, which is about a mile due north of Alcatraz. From there, they would swim across Raccoon Strait to Marin County, where they would steal a car and rob a clothing store so they could change out of their prison garb. Then the four would split up. Morris and West would go one way, the Anglin brothers another. They would ride off into the sunset, or the sunrise more likely, as free men. Now that was the plan, but making it onto the cell house roof and across the icy, rough waters of the San Francisco Bay would require a great deal of tools and materials, all acquired or assembled under the watchful eye of Alcatraz's guards. One of the men swiped a crowbar, which they would later use to spread the bars across the opening which led to the roof but removing the fastenings that held the ventilator cap in place would prove a little more tricky. One day, while he was on painting detail near the barbershop, Al and Wes stole some electric clippers. Using the motor from the clippers and a drill bit one of the other men had picked up, Wes fashioned a sort of drill. But this drill's motor was too small to get the job done. Wes soon had another idea when he saw a broken vacuum cleaner in his cell area. He offered to fix it and was able to remove one of the vacuum's two motors and set it up to run only on the remaining motor. His second drill, powered by the vacuum cleaner motor, was still too weak and too noisy, so the men would need to find another solution.
1: Meanwhile, Morris, West, and the Anglins had to make the raft, oars, and life jackets, which would carry them to Angel Island and to freedom. To construct their 6 foot by 14 foot raft, the men began with 55 rubber prison raincoats they had stockpiled. I still, I've never found any indication of how they were able to accumulate 55 prison raincoats. Did you ever see anything about that?
0: Yeah, I think they just uh, got them from other inmates or picked them up where they saw them. I think
1: this was just a classic case of federal surplus and lack of supervision. (laughs) (laughs) They had gleaned inspiration for their raft from a couple of issues of Sports Illustrated and Popular Mechanics, which they had in their cells. Following these magazines' advice, the men glued pieces of the rubber raincoats together using contact cement. Then vulcanized the rubber by holding it against hot steam pipes in the prison in order to create a seal. They followed the same process for creating the life jackets. The men would inflate their raft using a concertina that Frank Morris had ordered from the prison authorities and fashioned into a makeshift bellows. I guess concertinas are really similar to accordions, by the way. The oars, meanwhile, were made from plywood. So how did the inmates do all of this construction work without Alcatraz's guards getting wind of their escape plan? Well, after finishing the digging work in their cells, they found the perfect place to build and store their tools and gear without arousing suspicion. One day, while on a painting detail, Alan West was assigned to a platform above the top floor of cells on B Block he convinced a guard that he needed to hang up blankets around his work area to keep the debris from falling into the cells below. It was there that Morris, West, and the Anglins set up their workshop and by night designed and constructed their raft life jackets and oars. But how did the men do all of this work outside their cells at night without a guard noticing their absence? Well they had a solution for that too. using concrete plaster, soap, glue, skin-colored paint from their prison art kit and hair clippings they had collected from the prison barber shop yep. the escapees made four frankly terrifying looking dummy heads. look it up folks they They're are horrid. creepy. <laughs> The men left their painted plaster creations, complete with furry eyebrows and eyelashes, on their pillows while they climbed up to the prison workshop after lights out and prepared their escape gear. Now, the dummy heads were obviously crude. They certainly were not going to end up in any art museum, but they were lifelike enough to stand in for a sleeping inmate during the guards' nightly counts.
0: So let's review the timeline a little bit. In May 1961, Alan West discovered that one of the ventilator caps on the cell block roof was not cemented shut, and he soon told his old friends Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers about this possible escape route. By December 1961, the inmates had earnestly begun their escape preparations. I think the few months delay in them getting started I read it was because they had asked to um, change cells so they could have adjoining cells. And Ah, that's why they didn't get started until December. Gotcha. Um, I read that. So that was December. And in late April or early May of 1962, the four had finished digging around the edges of their air vents and removing the grills. After that, they fashioned their plaster dummy heads. And in May, they collected the 55 prison raincoats and started working on their raft and life jackets. By June 11, 1962, after almost a year of planning and preparation, all the four had left to do was spread the bars across the ventilator opening leading to the roof, remove the ventilator cap, and make some finishing touches to their raft. The men were able to spread the bars using the crowbar they had swiped. But remember how we said that Alan West's makeshift drills were too weak and too noisy to loosen the fastenings of the rooftop ventilator cap? Well, finally, the men were able to break through the fastenings using some sort of abrasive cord. And that night, by 9.30 lights out, Morris, West, and the Anglins' escape plan was a go.
1: Just after 9.30, the four men began their escape. Morris and the Anglins slipped out of their cells and climbed up to their hidden workshop to retrieve their dummy heads. They placed their heads on the pillows and collected their escape gear and a few possessions, including some family photos and important addresses, before leaving their cells at Alcatraz behind forever. But nearby in Alan West's cell, the shit was starting to hit the fan. Several days earlier, in the lead-up to their escape, west had noticed that the fake cardboard grill he had made to cover his widened air vent kept slipping out of place and that the concrete around the opening was crumbling he feared that a guard might notice it so west used a little cement to hold it all together but at 9:30 on june 11th when he went to push the grill out and crawl into the utility corridor the grill was stuck fast Now, West told Clarence Anglin, who tried to help for a bit. Then Clarence went to get Frank Morris, who brought West a piece of pike to help him chip through the cement. Morris said he'd bring the Anglin brothers back to help, but the three never returned. And by the time West was able to remove his grill and climb up to the roof, Morris and the Anglins were long gone. West would climb back down to his cell. And turn himself in the next morning but for morris and the
0: anglins the escape continued on after crawling out of their cells and into the utility corridor climbing 30 feet of pipe to the top of the cell house and removing the ventilator hood the three escapees climbed onto the roof and crossed 100 feet of roof before climbing 50 feet down a smokestack on the side of the cell house they were able to lower all of their gear down from the roof using a 125-foot extension cord. We should mention here that at around 10.30, several guards in different areas of the cell house and surrounding buildings heard a series of loud noises that sounded like someone banging their hand on an oil drum. One guard even spent 45 minutes searching the cell house. This was perhaps the moment in which the men slid down the smokestack, or maybe when they were removing the metal ventilator cap to gain access to the roof. Maybe the
1: sounds were totally unrelated. We, of course, can't be sure. But after making it to the ground, the three then had to climb over a chain-link fence and carefully make it the last hundred yards down a very steep embankment to the shoreline, on the northeast side of the island. According to Alan West, the escapees planned to inflate their raft on the shoreline. And doing it on the shoreline, as opposed to the roof or elsewhere, makes definitely the most sense, since they already had enough to worry about and carry without carrying a fully inflated 6 foot by 14 foot raft. And as far as we know, the concertina was never recovered. Once the raft was inflated, The men put on their life jackets, climbed into their raft, and paddled away into the night. Where the water carried them, we will likely never know. At
0: 7.15 the next morning, all but three of the inmates on Alcatraz's B-block were standing at the front of their cells, ready for the first count of the day. But in cells 138, 150, and 152, Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin, seemingly slept on. A guard tapped on John England's pillow through the shell bars, but got no response. He found another officer who came and tapped on England's head. He felt the head crumble under the weight of his hand, and when he slapped it, it fell to the floor.
1: <laughs> That'd be so creepy. I
0: know. He <laughs> shouted at the other guards, threw the blanket off of England's bed, and did the same in the other two cells. The guards sounded the alarm, and Alcatraz went into lockdown. This is like Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> but if it were real, Absolutely. Crazy. So cinematic. With the help of the FBI and the Coast Guard, Alcatraz officials immediately began a search for the inmates and in an investigation into their escape. Guards noticed that the ventilation grills at the back of Morris and the Anglin cells had been knocked out. It was then that Alan West showed the guards the hole in his own cell wall and admitted his involvement in the plot. West explained their path of escape to the FBI and took credit for the most for most of the planning. And investigators were able to confirm many of the elements of West's story. They found the inmates hidden workshop on top of cell block B. They found the ventilator cap on the cell block roof which had been removed and they found that the smokestack on the side of the cell block had sustained some damage when the escapees climbed down it. FBI bloodhounds also tracked the inmates' scent from their cells,
1: to the roof, to the shoreline. Both land and sea were scoured for any trace of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. Alcatraz Island and Angel Island were, of course, thoroughly searched, as was the Marin coastline, which the escapees hoped to swim to after landing on Angel Island. The Coast Guard searched the bay by water and by air, and even searched boats docked in the bay for possible stowaways. Within several days, one of the escapees' oars was found floating in the water between Alcatraz and Angel Island, and one of their life jackets washed up on Cronkite Beach in Marin County. The remains of another life jacket or life preserver were also found in the water. A small packet made out of the same waterproof material as their raincoats also turned up in the water. In it, investigators found dozens of family photos, a receipt of a money order made out to Clarence Anglin, some letters, and a list of names and addresses. These personal items could be definitively identified as belonging to the escapees. So here's a review for you of what escape gear was recovered and what wasn't recovered, as far as we know. Investigators recovered one oar, one life jacket, some other sort of life preserver, and a packet of the escapees' personal belongings. They did not recover the other oars and life jackets or the concertina used to blow up the raft. The fate of the escapee's raft is a little bit dubious, and we'll get back to that later.
0: About a month after the escape, crew members aboard the Norwegian freight ship SS Norafjell spotted a human body floating in the Pacific Ocean, about 20 miles northwest of the Golden Gate Bridge. The body was clad in white trousers and was floating face down, with the hands, feet, and torso part of the body dangling in the water, so only the butt part of the body was visible. The crew didn't report the sighting until a couple of months later when they returned to the U.S. from their freight run. So of course the body couldn't be recovered and there was no way to identify the remains based on the crew's description. But based on the description of the pants and the timing of the sighting, investigators entertained the possibility that the body belonged to one of the escapees. A month of seawater and sun could have bleached the light blue denim trousers worn by Alcatraz inmates such that they appeared white. Based on a number of factors, both the FBI and the Bureau of Prisons came to the conclusion that the men had clearly made it off of Alcatraz Island, but had not made it out of the San Francisco Bay. First, there was the potential sighting of a body we just mentioned. Second, there was the packet of personal items recovered soon after the escape, which investigators argued Morris and the Anglins would have made a great effort not to lose. Third, there was the lack of evidence on land that the escapees had made it across the bay, apart from what washed up on Cronkite Beach. Fourth, there was the fact that no crimes were committed nearby that could be connected to the escapees. Remember, they had planned to steal a car and rob a clothing store after making it to the mainland. In the FBI's experience, fugitives usually began to leave a trail within a few days. Fifth, none of Morris and the Anglin's friends or family ever had confirmed contact with the men after their escape. And finally, the investigators had science on their side. Engineers who monitored the tides and conditions of the San Francisco Bay at the time stated that between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., On the night of June 11, 1962, any floating object in the San Francisco Bay would have been pulled by the tide out to the ocean under the Golden Gate Bridge. Reaching Angel Island, which, remember, is due north of Alcatraz. while cutting across the tide that's pulling you westward towards the ocean, would have been extremely
1: difficult, if not impossible. We've assumed up to now that the escapees' raft proved seaworthy. But let's say that the raft started taking on water and the men ended up in the bay. Could they have swum to safety? Well, the Coast Guard put the water temperature on the night of June eleventh, 1962 at between 50 and 54 degrees Fahrenheit. And according to the estimates we've seen, A person wearing no protective clothing in water at those temperatures will become exhausted or unconscious within one to two hours, and they'll be dead within one to six hours. And how long would it take for them to swim from Alcatraz to Angel Island? Well, we're again working off of estimates, but it apparently takes a beginner around 45 minutes to swim a mile in a swimming pool with a few breaks built in. But I think that's a very conservative time estimate for this situation. We're not talking about three beginner long-distance swimmers. We're talking about three men who have no physical conditioning whatsoever. And it's much more difficult to swim long distances in open water than it is in a swimming pool because of the currents and the waves and poor visibility. In short, it would have been very difficult for the escapees to have made the one-mile swim to Angel Island before exhaustion and hypothermia set in. Plus, we've already established that getting to Angel Island is almost impossible, whether by boat or swimming, because of the tide pulling you westward towards the Golden Gate Bridge and the ocean. Following that tide and swimming towards the Marin coastline is going to be just as long of a swim in terms of distance, if not longer. The FBI also consulted with the Coast Guard and coroners in the Bay Area to determine the likelihood of the escapees' bodies being found had they drowned in the Bay. These agencies had recovered a number of bodies in the San Francisco Bay or on the Pacific Coast which took up to two or three weeks to resurface and which resurfaced a great distance from where they had entered the water. Now, this can be explained by a number of factors, including the undercurrents of the San Francisco Bay and the cold water temperatures, which prevent bodies from off-gassing as much and rising as quickly to the surface as they would in warm water. Remember, when someone drowns, their body quickly sinks and then later will rise back up to the surface. The Coast Guard and Bay Area coroners also had a number of recorded drowning and suicide victims in the area whose bodies were never recovered.
0: In spite of all their evidence, the FBI continued their investigation into the escape from Alcatraz until 1979, following up on all leads and potential sightings. They even investigated the possibility that Frank Morris had bribed an officer at Alcatraz, who in exchange for $2,500 would aid in the escape and arrange a car to meet Morris and the Anglins on the mainland. This lead came from another inmate, but investigators came to believe that he had made up the story. In 1979, the FBI closed their case, having uncovered no evidence to suggest that the escapees were still alive. They turned over responsibility for the investigation to the U.S. Marshal Service. The U.S. Marshals' investigation is still ongoing almost 60 years later.
1: Since they took over the investigation in 1979, the U.S. Marshals Service has pursued a number of leads in the United States and abroad. So let's bring you up to speed. For several years, Marshals investigated a rumor that Clarence Anglin had escaped to the Bahamas and lived out the rest of his life there, which proved to be false. They visited and fingerprinted a man running a restaurant in a small town in Delaware who was said to be John Anglin. Again, no match. In 2010, they went so far as to exhume a body from an unmarked grave, believing that one of the escapees was buried there. That lead also proved to be a dead end. In 2011, the U.S. Marshal managing the investigation into the escape from Alcatraz made a couple of weird discoveries while combing through old law enforcement files. The first, that, oops, oh, well, it's possible that the escapee's raft was actually found. According to this U.S. Marshal, there's mention in some of the FBI teletypes of a raft found on Angel Island and of footprints leading away from it. In the FBI files that were released to the public, which we've read, there is actually mention of a raft found on Angel Island and another raft found at Point Richmond. But it also says that there was no indication either raft was used by the inmates and there's no mention, as far as we could find, of footprints going away from the raft on Angel Island. And if the FBI really did find this raft, they must be hiding it somewhere, because the National Park Service certainly doesn't have it as part of their collection, and neither agency mentions the raft being found as part of their official escape from Alcatraz materials. We weren't able to get a straight answer as to the fate of the raft, which is pretty annoying, but we're going to have to leave a little question mark there. This U.S. Marshal also uncovered in law enforcement files that a car had been stolen in Marin County on the night of the escape. The car theft was actually reported in area newspapers at the time, so it wasn't a secret. But has it been definitively connected to Morris and the Anglins? Not as far as we know.
0: Then in 2013, the San Francisco Police Department received a letter the author identified himself as John Anglin. In his letter, he says, My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. The author claims that Frank Morris died in 2008 and that Clarence Anglin died in 2011. He then tries to make a deal with law enforcement. Quote, If you announce on TV that I will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke. The letter was forwarded on to the FBI, who examined the handwriting and tested the paper for fingerprints and DNA the results of their analyses were inconclusive, so neither yes nor no, and the author of the letter has never been identified. The U.S. Marshals, however, consider it to be of no value to their investigation, saying, there is absolutely no reason to believe that any of them would have changed their lifestyle and become completely law-abiding citizens after this escape. The letter and its contents weren't made public until 2018, when it was leaked to the press by an unnamed source.
1: So that's about all the information we have about the U.S. Marshals' investigation. But outside of that investigation, several other developments have occurred in the last decade, which just add more intrigue to the mystery of the escape from Alcatraz. In 2014, a team of Dutch scientists used 3D computer modeling to construct a flow model of the San Francisco Bay on the night of June 11, 1962. According to this model, Morris and the Anglins' chances of survival depend entirely on what time they launched the raft. If they left Alcatraz at any time before 11 p.m., the tide would have inevitably pulled them out to sea under the Golden Gate Bridge and they would have almost certainly perished. If they left Alcatraz after midnight, the tide would have pulled them back into the bay, either towards Berkeley or south towards Oakland. But if they launched the raft in that hour window between 11 p.m. and midnight, the tide would have initially pulled them towards the Golden Gate Bridge, but right about at the bridge, they would have encountered a small window of what's called slack tide, meaning that there was no tide pulling them in either direction, and there was a good chance the raft could have landed at Horseshoe Bay before the tide reversed. Now Horseshoe Bay is right in front of the bridge on the right side if you're looking towards the ocean. This flow model also predicts that the escapees' gear would have floated back into the bay towards Angel Island, which explains the discovery of the ore and the packet of personal items. This model also echoes what investigators at the time believed, that the tides on the night of June 11th would have pulled the escapees towards the Pacific Ocean and would have made getting to Angel Island impossible. But it does leave open the possibility that they made it to land, and the window of time seems realistic in terms of when they would have made it to the shoreline after getting out of the cell house and off of the roof.
0: In 2015, while participating in a History Channel series about the escape from Alcatraz, members of the Anglin family unearthed a photo, supposedly taken in Brazil in 1975, which allegedly depicts John and Clarence Anglin. In the photo, which is a bit fuzzy, you see two men both wearing very 1970s printed shirts and sunglasses <laughs> and both with long hair and healthy sideburns. Yeah, it is a look posing on either side of a mound of dirt, although I'm pretty sure it's an anthill. It was
1: it's like the most random place to stand to get your and picture the photo taken. It
0: is objectively shit. It's yeah. just a really yeah. bad photo. But the Anglin family is convinced that the photo, which was apparently taken by a fellow convict and friend of the family, shows John and Clarence alive and well and enjoying their post-escape life. And in 2020, IDEN TV and Roth Co. released a video demonstration of their AI facial recognition technology software in which they analyzed the 1975 Brazil photo And compared it with known photos of John and Clarence Anglin. After creating a 3D map of the faces of the Anglin brothers and the two men in the Brazil photo the software calculated that John and Clarence were in fact a match for the men in the photo. If the U.S. Marshals have any opinion on the photo or consider it of value to their investigation they don't appear to have shared that with the public.
1: Since 1962 the Anglin family has maintained that John and Clarence did survive their escape from Alcatraz. They remain certain that a mysterious phone call soon after the escape from a caller claiming to be John Anglin, and the flowers received by John and Clarence's mother for several years after the escape, and the leather pouch received by brother Alfred Anglin, supposedly containing details of the escape, and a Christmas card sent to the family home in winter of 1962 are all proof that the Anglin brothers survived. To mother from John, the card read, "Merry Christmas." I kind of would, as his mother would have hoped, to have heard a little bit more than just "Merry Christmas." Like,
0: yeah, I'm I out. Really this is where I live. Of those letters,
1: but yeah. although they didn't quite know what to make of the letter supposedly sent by John Anglin in 2013 and weren't sure of its authenticity, the surviving Anglin family members seem convinced that the Brazil photo is authentic. The U.S. Marshals Service has pledged to continue pursuing the escapees until they can determine that they are dead or in custody, or until the men turn 99 years old. But since June eleventh, 1962, there have been no confirmed sightings of Frank Morris, John Anglin, or Clarence Anglin. They have made no confirmed contact with friends or family, and their bodies have never been recovered. Today, Clarence Anglin would be 89, John Anglin would be 90, and Frank Morris would be 94.
0: And in case you're wondering what happened to Alan West... The failed escapee turned FBI informant. West was one of the last inmates to be transferred from Alcatraz before the penitentiary closed in 1963. He served time in Georgia and Florida, and somewhere along the way was sentenced to life after fatally stabbing a fellow inmate. I told you he was an asshole. And he died of peritonitis in 1978.
1: So before we wrap up with our thoughts on the fate of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, I just wanted to briefly close the loop on the fate of Alcatraz Penitentiary itself. We mentioned earlier that by 1961, plans were afoot for a new modern maximum security penitentiary at Marion, Illinois. Alcatraz was initially envisioned in 1934 to serve as law enforcement's response to the public's fears about violence and gangsterism and organized crime during Prohibition and the Great Depression. Well, by 1961, the times had really changed, and Alcatraz was just a crumbling heap. It was costly, it was challenging to operate, um, it was isolated from the mainland, and it had to have all of its supplies, even its drinking water, brought in by boat. And the Bureau of Prisons estimated that at Alcatraz, they spent more than triple what it cost at other federal prisons per capita to feed and house the inmates. So basically, Alcatraz had outlived its usefulness. Like, fear of being sent there wasn't even really a deterrent to bank robbers anymore. So at the end of a momentous era in law enforcement, Alcatraz ceased its prison operations on March 21, 1963. As the final group of convicts loaded onto the boat leaving the rock that day, a fellow named Frank Weatherman, the last guy to board, was asked how he felt about leaving. His reply? Good. Alcatraz was never no good for nobody.
0: As for the island and its facilities, well, No other federal departments or agencies expressed interest in the land, and it was eventually handed over to the GSA as federal surplus property. As the feds and then the state of California and city of San Francisco dithered over what to do with the island, a series of three occupations of Alcatraz occurred in 1964 and 1969, led by a group of young Native American college students. From November 1969, Through June 1971, in numbers ranging from 100 to 400 at its peak, the students ultimately claimed and occupied Alcatraz Island. Their aim was to obtain the deed to the island in order to establish a university, cultural center, and museum for Native peoples. In the end, though their stated goals were not realized, they were successful in pointing out to the public the plight of the Native nations. And asserting their right and need for self determination. This chapter in Alcatraz's history is fascinating, and we are planning another episode to delve into the story of these occupations, the folks involved, and their very important role in the forefront of the Native American civil rights movement of the 1970s. In 1972, President Nixon signed legislation creating the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which today includes over 80,000 acres of naturally or historically significant lands in the San Francisco Bay Area. Alcatraz was included in this recreation area, and the National Park Service took over the island and has managed and worked to preserve it ever since. In the fall of 1973, Alcatraz opened to the public. In 1986, it was designated a National Historic Landmark. And today, Alcatraz welcomes over 1.4 million visitors each year. So, partner, what do you think? Did Did they make it? Well, I think the evidence and the science have more than demonstrated that it was possible, but I think there are too many things that would have had to have gone perfectly right for them to make it. Their raft, which they obviously couldn't have tested before the night of the escape, had to be perfect. And they had to have launched the raft within that 11 p.m. to midnight window um, that we talked about in that recent study. So that had to be perfect also. And after that, they had to have disappeared off the face of the earth and not committed another crime for the rest of their lives and there were three of them so only one of them would have had to have slipped up Mm. and you know re-emerged but that didn't happen i can maybe see frank morris leaving his old life behind and living in anonymity somewhere because he didn't have a family or any real connection to any community but the England brothers came from a big family that they clearly had a good relationship with because their surviving relatives, their nephews, and I think their sisters, if they're still alive, are still looking for them almost 60 years later. So I just don't see John and Clarence leaving all of that behind forever. And I know their mother was sure that she received flowers and Christmas cards from them, but I think those could just as easily have been from someone who wants to bring a little comfort and solace to Mama Anglin, or just wants to insert themselves into the situation or do something nice for a stranger. Meanwhile, the FBI kept a close watch on their hometown and their family members for years and heard nothing. Also, I don't know if I see Morris or the Anglins going completely straight after their escape and never committing another crime. By their 30s, these men had shown themselves to be good at really only two things, robbing banks and escaping from prisons. So do I see them making an honest living under assumed names? Not really. Particularly the anglans They had a reputation for being both reckless and, and incompetent competent. criminals. A really bad combination, <laughs> which also doesn't bode well for professional excess out of the world of crime. As for the Brazil photo, I think that just looking at it, you can see some vague resemblance, like, okay, it's two guys, one of them is blonde, one of them is brunette, and they maybe look related. But I'd like to see someone else, some other facial recognition expert or some other software, confirm the results of IDEN TV software. The, The video demonstration was cool, but for me, that's That's all that it was. We didn't really get to see the science behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that on the night of June 11th, 1962, Morris and the Anglins would have very quickly realized that their escape wasn't working out as they planned. Um, They would have realized there was no way they were going to make it to Angel Island because of the tide. And maybe their raft isn't particularly seaworthy. I'm inclined to believe that it wasn't because it was handmade and they couldn't test it. So, I think the raft probably didn't make it, and they were pulled out towards the ocean. They probably swam and hung on for as long as they could, and their bodies either never resurfaced or they resurfaced somewhere way out in the ocean. And maybe the body that the Norwegian crew saw was one of them. I don't doubt it. So, as much as I want them to have survived, because it's an amazing story and they're not really evil people, (laughs) um... I just don't. I don't think that they did. But at the same time, do I think we should have a healthy level of skepticism about the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover's investigation into Mm -hmm. it? And do I think we should keep in mind that both the FBI and the Bureau of Prisons and the U.S. Marshals, to a certain extent, have a vested interest in them not making it? Hell yeah. So I think we should keep that in mind. I just I don't think all the pieces came together for them. I don't
1: think they made it. Yeah. So, I mean, I I pretty much buy your case for them not making it. The ironic thing to me, if if that's the way you could describe it, is that I actually see a better chance of them successfully making landfall on Horseshoe Bay like in that in that one magic hour where the currents calm down and they could you know, float to Horseshoe Bay, I see a better chance of that actually happening than I do see them staying straight and not committing a crime, any of them, for the rest of their lives. Because these guys are the definition of career criminals, and they, you got to do something to, you know, get the money to move on, and they don't have anything you know, with them to.
0: You're right. They they left with nothing. Yeah.
1: So um, I do, I do think that when I watch the Alcatraz episode on Mythbusters, I kind of, I'm like, yay, you guys could have made it. Like I was like, you know, when they said, yeah, theoretically they could get, I was like, yay. Um, Cause you know, you kind of, you sort of feel for a good prison breakout story, especially when they're You know, not really the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. They're bumbling burglars, two of them. But, yeah, they were no Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Prison. You know, they didn't plan things out like he did and, you know, go through a pipe full of shit (laughs) and come out clean on the other side.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I just, uh, it's a great story, but I don't think,
1: um, I don't think it worked out for them. Yeah. So now that we've finished our very, very deep dive into the escape from Alcatraz and the island's storied history, uh, we like to close with a segment we call CCS Recommends, where we'll each be sharing with you a movie, book, podcast, recipe, artist, or some other cool thing that we're enjoying at the moment.
0: So I have a musician to recommend to you guys today. His name is Loyal Karner and he's a British hip-hop artist. And he's known for pairing his confessional style lyrics with lo-fi, jazzy, mellow beats, but it's the topics he discusses in his songs that I think really make him stand out from a lot of the other hip-hop artists we hear these days. He raps about his experience growing up in South London, being raised by a single mom, his struggles with ADHD and dyslexia, the loss of his stepfather, his difficulties navigating the world as a person of color and a biracial person, the women he's loved, the friends he's lost touch with, and the chefs who have been his role models. He started cooking as a kid as a sort of meditation practice to help him manage his ADHD, and he has been passionate about food and cooking ever since, which I think is cool. And outside of music, Loyal Carner runs a cooking school for teens with ADHD, and he's an outspoken advocate for young people's access to therapy and counseling, and works to raise awareness about male suicide. So I'm recommending him because I like his music, but also because we need more men in the public eye, particularly men of color, who are willing to talk about dyslexia and ADHD, mental illness, suicide, and grief and I hope that his music succeeds in normalizing some of these things that people of all genders, ethnicities, and backgrounds struggle with. So if you're a fan of hip-hop music, or you're just open to listening to something new, check out Loyal Carner, and that's spelled L-O-Y-L-E-C-A-R-N-E-R. And if I had to recommend an album to start with, it would be his 2019 album, which is called Not Waving, But Drowning.
1: Okay, so as usual, you saw my deer-in-the-headlights expression when you asked me to come up with a recommend. So Here it goes. Yesterday, uh, yesterday's Wednesday, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, St. Patrick's Day, which I think a lot of you know is, as a holiday, it's really an American construct. I mean, folks in Ireland kind of roll their eyes over it. But um, you and I are Irish, and you partner on both sides of your family trees. So to celebrate, we tend to do at least the bare minimum, like bust out the Guinness for your dad or whatever. This year, we found a great Irish soda bread recipe on the site um, Sally's com. In fact, we found quite a few go-to recipes from this site, including my favorite chocolate chip cookie bars. Mm. So the site offers quite a few options for healthy sweets, although this is not typically the way we roll, as well as dairy-free, egg-free, gluten-free, and vegan options. So yeah, if your early quarantine baking habit has persisted, check out Sally's salliesbakingaddiction.com. And I will post a link to the lovely soda bread recipe. It turned out great and is yummy with a good slather. before we go
0: we have a little update for you back in episode three i recommended the podcast your own backyard which tells the story of the 1996 disappearance of cal poly student Kristen smart i told you then that we could expect new developments very soon in the investigation well just this week that we're recording there were a couple of big developments in the case investigators from the san luis obispo sheriff's department conducted a two-day search of the arroyo grande property owned and inhabited by paul flores's father ruben flores the investigators brought in both cadaver dogs and ground penetrating radar and did some digging under the deck of the home on the property cadaver dogs alerted to a 1985 volkswagen cabriolet stored in the garage which in 1996 belonged to Paul Flores's sister Ermelinda. At that time Ermelinda lived only a mile away from Paul's Cal Poly dorm room. And after being referred to for 25 years as a person of interest by the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department, Paul Flores has now been officially named the prime suspect in the disappearance of Kristen Smart. All this to say, if you haven't listened to the podcast Your Own Backyard yet, go listen to it, go follow the podcast on Instagram so you can see updates from Chris, the host, and go support Chris's work because he has played a huge part in renewing public interest and law enforcement interest in this case, and I really think he's going to see this investigation through to the end and get justice for Kristen Smart and her family sooner rather than later. So, thanks for tuning in to another episode of California Crime Stories, and thanks for hanging on till the end, because it was kind of a long one, but we're glad you're here. If you have any questions or feedback for us, or if you want to suggest a case that you think we should cover in a future episode, send us an email at feedback at ccspod.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you subscribed and gave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the CCS pod California crime stories is researched written and produced by your hosts with artwork also provided by us our theme is Arcadia by Cody Martin thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time